Will ad blocking save the ad industry? And the best marketer of the year, your fans. This is episode 55 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, will ad blocking save the ad industry? Uh, that's a strange <laughs> one, isn't it? This sentiment comes surprisingly from a surprising source, namely Ad Age. You wouldn't expect them to say something like this, would you? And I think clearly uh, someone was on crack when he wrote this. <laughs> um, people hate your ads and are actively blocking them. Everybody panic. Whoa, slow down for a second, marketers. Look at the stats. Recent data shows that the majority of people don't hate ads. Rather, they hate poor user experiences. Now, Tom, let's stop just right there for <laughs> oh, a second. Oh, boy. We're going to get into some <laughs> distinctions right now, right? <laughs> so, in other words, it's not the ads they hate. It's the poor user experiences. Now, let me ask you something, Tom. When I refer to a poor user experience in a digital world, what might characterize a poor user experience in particular? What do you mean? Like an ad? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Look, Mark, I, the whole article, I mean, I, I, I read the title of the, the subtitle of the piece and it says, you don't want consumers who don't want you. And I'm thinking... <laughs> That's the only kind exactly, of consumer you because, want. Exactly, <laughs> because we're not calling them customers or fans. We're calling them people who consume. <laughs> the goal is to get as many consumers as possible to consume what you offer. So I just, you know, it's it's funny because once I had a conversation with a guy who was a creative director of a major New York ad agency at a at a conference, and I said, "Hey, aren't brands kind of becoming their own media platforms nowadays? What do they need advertising for? They are their own media platform. They can do their own thing." And he thought about that for a second. He said, "Yeah, but I mean, what if you're dental floss?" That's okay, I guess. <laughs> you know, I mean, you may block the ads for dental floss. But you might need dental floss anyway, right? Well, then you just go get and dental floss. That's right. Well, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, but not my brand. No, okay. And if you are not blocking the ads for dental floss, frankly, what is wrong with you? So it is more complicated than this guy makes it seem. Here he quotes a survey, which is always dangerous, <laughs> right? Sure, there are some people, less than 16% of all users who claim to, quote, hate ads and will never click on engage or convert based on an ad. Now, Tom, that kind of like extreme response is rare in nature. <laughs> but you know everyone's looking at that say, well, I don't want to say never. I'll say almost never just in case that one in a million ad that interrupts my experience that I really do like, I'll click on it. Ad blocking empowers these people to have the user experience they want by opting out of uh, campaigns. But why would you want to waste your valuable budget trying to show ads in front of these individuals when they're actively telling you they don't want to see them? Oh, man. Look. <laughs> because can you believe this is an ad No, age? look. Listen, he's right, okay? The majority of people don't hate ads. But to, honestly, Mark, I don't think the majority of people hate poor user experiences. Here's what I think. I think they accept them for what they are. So, mm -hmm. like, is an ad on television or in a magazine, is that a poor user experience? It, no, because it's become, like, an accepted part of the experience. I, 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 I equate it to, like, peeling a banana. Imagine the next time you see someone getting ready to eat a banana. Ask him or her if they hate peeling the banana. 
<laughs> they will look at you like you've got two heads because they accept the fact that they have to peel the banana because all bananas require peeling. But they aren't really engaged with the peeling. They're subconsciously <laughs> peeling it. <laughs> so you're saying that, that hate is too extreme a term to really characterize what people feel. Well, what I'm saying is, is if, if this stuff is everywhere and they can accept it, then it's not something they hate. But this brings us to the real issue, right? It's that people hate your ads. I mean, he said it ironically. People hate your ads and are actively blocking them. Ooh, everybody panic. He was trying to be ironic. Mm -hmm. He's right. People should really panic because what we're talking about are ads on mobile devices. Mm. People hate it. It's sucking bandwidth. It is making things bad for them. And they will continually opt out and block ads to improve performance. Because you know why? It's like peeling a green banana. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> well, I've been trying to think about your analogy relative to magazines and television. And here I think is the, is the difference that makes these ads all the more intrusive and annoying. And that is this, uh, because technology enables a level of interaction and uh, animation, um, advertisers struggling for attention are leveraging that interaction and animation. So you have ads which grow from one side of the screen to right. cover the rest. You have ads that float across the screen in your way. That doesn't happen on television. That doesn't happen in magazines, right? I mean, an ad is an accepted thing because an ad knows its limits. Exactly. <laughs> and today, advertising, especially in digital forms and particularly on mobile where the real estate is so precious, they... Uh, to me, they feel more intrusive than that's, ever. There are, are sites where, um, where the advertising is just overwhelming. I deliberately don't block it because I want to see what the experience is intended to be by the publisher and the advertiser. Look, Mark, you've got it and right. It's you've got it exactly right. Do you remember when, and I don't know how they were pulling it off, but do you remember how the, the advertisers on television started cranking the volume up on their ads? Yes. yes. See, see that's, that's what you hate. Right. Yes. If they just left it alone, okay, we might have tolerated it and watched the ad. And that's what you're saying is the ha they have the ability to play with technology now on the Internet. And they're doing everything yes. they possibly can to try to get us to pay attention. And it's having the opposite effect. And what you described uh, led to legislation, right. as I recall. Um, here the, the piece goes on. To reset the scale, we have to take a cold, hard look at how we're treating consumers Advertisers need to start asking questions of their agency partners and the demand-side platforms where they buy inventory. Brands need to examine their delivery systems and partner practice. None of this is ever going to nope. happen. They also need to see what actions partners are taking on their behalf to achieve the results they're reporting. Here's my favorite part. It's likely that many brands would be horrified to see how and where their ads appear online, interrupting the flow of content on some pages, appearing more than 10 times on a single page on others. Tom, if you don't see where your ads are appearing online is because you are looking, not looking, or you're looking and not seeing because it's right there in front of the advertiser's eyes and they choose not to well, see. Well, they're not looking, Mark. <laughs> you know why? Because it's such a, it's an arm's length transaction. What they're doing is they're sitting down and they're doing these programmatic buys with, with media planners and buyers and they're spreading them all over the, the place in order to achieve some kind of scale. And right. I'm going to tell you, 
what's going to happen in the future is that they're not going to do that because they're going to find out that people are blocking them. They're going to go to mm -hmm. sites that have aggregated attention in which ad blockers don't block. Like, for example, I don't know if you've noticed it lately. But have you noticed that there are more and more sponsored ads on Amazon when you search their products? Yes. That's, that's yeah. what I'm telling you. That's what's going to happen because Amazon has the aggregated attention. Mm -hmm. So that's, what's, that's peelable bananas. You know what I mean? Not green ones. So are you, are you saying then that um, the advantage will go to those, um, those platforms which can aggregate the attention and circumvent the ad blockers because of the nature of the advertising? Exactly right. Exactly right. Because you can't block those sponsored ads on Amazon. Mm -hmm. I, I was, you know, I'm starting to see so many of them that I would like to figure out how, how to block those. <laughs> But no, I, I'm getting confused because I used to search for something and then look at the results and say, okay, which one has the best reviews? And now I'm seeing all these sponsored ads now. So they mm -hmm. better watch out with their user experience as well. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. The second topic we have, Tom, actually is one of the solutions yeah, to the I first topic. Yeah, I was thinking topic. the exact same thing. It's from uh, Quartz, and the piece is called Glossier is building a multi-million dollar millennial makeup empire with Slack, Instagram, and selfies. This is an awesome story. I'm only going to touch on it because it's, it's really quite long, so I just want to touch on it. Um, in the autumn of 2014, Emily Weiss, a 29-year-old New Yorker, published a post on her beloved beauty blog, Into the Gloss, announcing the launch of her new cosmetics line, Glossier, which is pronounced, Tom, Glossier. Okay, right. I had to look that one up. <laughs> I know you were doubting that, right? I was going to say right? Glossier, so I'm glad you said that. <laughs> uh, by July of 2016, the company had blown through annual sales projections for the year, and Weiss recently said she expects to see 600% sales growth before it ends. But here's the deal with this thing. Very little of this is from marketing or advertising per se. Um, it, it is both a cosmetics company and a media brand, one with 337 followers on Instagram. It's intimate top-shelf interviews on Into the Gloss, reach about one and a half million women monthly, offering girl talk and the daily beauty routines of everyone from Selena Gomez to Ariana Huffington. <laughs> I'm much more interested in Selena I think, Gomez I think you personally. meant 337,000 followers on Instagram. What I said? 337. <laughs> well, you know. It's a little bit of a... But between the time... Between the time I read it and you responded, they, they multiplied by a factor of a thousand. You're right. Um, she attributes her company's explosive growth, growth and cultural clout to its hyper-engaged fan base, an army of Glossier girls that follow the brand's every pro product pronouncement, Instagram post, top shelf interview, an event invitation, and echo the brand's message to their followers on social media and in real life. She estimates that Glossier owes 90% of its revenue to these fans. It's best been mostly word of mouth, she says. Really interesting, well, right? think about it. There you have it. Like you said, it's the media solution to people blocking your source of revenue, which are the ads you sell to marketers. What you do is you create a media property that provides people with value, in this case, a beauty mm -hmm. tips blog, and then you develop products and services specifically for those people. I mean, how many times, it's like we've been saying this over and over, yet we don't see enough of these examples, even though the barriers to entry are so low. And I think I know why. I mean, we'll get to it in a, in a little bit. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because what the... Go so, ahead. 
Yeah, so so let's go with that for a bit because what you're saying is you build this media platform. The media platform has people going to it with a certain expectation. Then you say, hey, you trust me for this information. We're here sharing this category of beauty together. I'm going to develop these products that are informed by my insights from you, my fans, and the experts that I talk to. And those products are perfectly in tune with the audience because the audience has been nurtured over time. There's no need for advertising. There's no need for ads that float onto your mobile experience. You already know the brand. You already trust the brand. And thus, you buy the product. That's what you're saying, Yeah, but but see, it's beyond that. It's not build a media property and and then because you've now aggregated all these people go make something and give it to them i love what what weiss said when when someone asked how she makes her customers feel involved she says mm-hmm. she says involve her <laughs> don't just make her feel involved reward her if she's involved get her involved say thank you so in essence mm-hmm. she's co-creating this this thing that she's doing with these people by asking their opinion, by helping them share things, by getting them involved, and, and I think by cutting them in now, some of the some of the ones that have the biggest voices on on a piece of the action, right? Yeah, it's it's classic marketing, exactly. isn't it? Well, find out what people want and find out what people in your circle want and give it to them. And she makes the point: cosmetics are not just cosmetics; they're content, and indeed they are. They're both they're content that they sell. Yeah, it's funny. It's no different from the New York Times selling a subscription, right? Yeah, it's right? funny. You call it classic marketing. And I would say classic meaning old school, the old days. Yes. Because see what the business world has used to value, right? Because it produced a desirable outcome was what? Mass production, mass marketing, more mm-hmm. and better data, hard-nosed price negotiation, relationships with middlemen, treating people mm-hmm. like consumers. All of a sudden, that's not working anymore. Because the internet has flipped it back to the past. And, and now it's yes. about classic marketing, empathy, personal relationships, involving people, adding value to their lives, going the extra mile. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And she echoes that. She said, long before they launch a new product, Into the Gloss will publish an open thread soliciting advice on what its readers want. Sample questions. Which two creams could have a baby and uh, which two creams could have a bait? What? See, but this is the millennials. Your- You're not supposed to understand this. <laughs> this is for girls. Oh, I get it. Could have a baby and produce your ideal moisturizer. <laughs> I get it. Now I understand. You're not supposed to. Yes, I, surprisingly, I'm not a girl. So her new program that you were referring to is the equivalent of kind of, a, and I hate to say this, and I'm sure she hate, hated to read this, but a Mary Kay for the new millennium. It's a referral program on steroids, but it's not about kind of, you know, uh, uh, um, um, uh, pyramid scheme marketing. Um, It's really about, as she put it, they're rewarded by association with the brand in sort of this intangible social currency, she said. And here's my favorite part of this one. (laughs) Follower count means so much to so many people in this world, and that's a huge part of what we think we're giving them. I know. It's social. (laughs) Look, people don't understand when you say that social... Currency should be a, a value component of what you do. They don't get what that means. They go, oh, we should have a Twitter account. Oh, we should have a Facebook mm-hmm. page. No, you should try to figure out how to give the people that are connected to you that social currency so people are talking about them. That's it. In other words, it's not so much using your sh- social platforms as bully pulpits for your own brand. It's not a promotional thing. It's a reflective thing. How do I how do I allow my fans, my my influencers, 
uh, to kind of uh, it, it, to, to be more themselves in the halo of my brand and to share that with their friends. Yeah, exactly. Listen, like what like what we do with the hashtag at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot about how we, we do don't that? do that at all. <laughs> we don't do that at all. Well, that's a good question, and the question is, how do you? Okay, this I, this makes perfect I know, sense not- for. This makes perfect sense for what you might describe as kind of a beauty brand or maybe a vanity brand, and I and I mean that in the best you know definition of the term. But how do you apply it to other brands where maybe vanity or or or, or identity aren't as central? What, what do you mean? How do you apply it? It's it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same thing. It's try to understand who these listeners are, what what problems do they have, what are they trying to solve. How can you bring them not just information, but how can you bring them connections? How can you bring them mm-hmm. products? How can you develop products? What services can you provide? It's, it's just trying to figure out how to add value and empower them. Because no matter what the category is, no matter what the product or service is, if people choose to spend money or attention on it, then it matters to them. Thus, you can presumably make it matter that's more. Exact, that's right. Listen, if they're listening to you, they're finding value. Now, the question mm-hmm. is, how do you expand that value? How do you touch mm-hmm. them in, in different ways? And it doesn't have to be through content. It can be, it, we've talked about this, right? It can be through products. Mm-hmm. It can be through events. It can be through some networking platform. All kinds of different ways. But you have to try things to find out which ones they like. As, as Gary Vaynerchuk said to me so long ago when I asked him why he did the wine videos, considering that the wine videos per se weren't there to sell wine, he said, well, I, I do the videos because I don't sell stuff in the videos. I sell stuff on the second level. Because I have a relationship with people through the videos, they buy things from me that are, that are for sale around the videos. That's basically what he said, and that's what yeah, you're saying. Look, it's funny. You know, the author of the ad blocking piece, he quoted Seth Godin. And in fact, yeah. this is the piece that should have mentioned Godin because she's following his advice to a T. Right, right. Good point. Tom, it's time for Rants and Raves, and this being our probably year-end episode, right? Our holiday oh, episode. happy holidays, Mike. <laughs> we, happy holidays. We have to be mindful of the holidays as we rant and rave, so let's be nice. Right, Go ahead. I'm, be, I'm actually not going to be nice, so, <laughs> so I'm going to rant just in time for the holidays, and guess what? This rant comes of all places from you but, I, but I knew you wouldn't use it for your rant because you're much too nice a guy so I'm going to do it for you so it seems that you Mark received a quote-unquote personal email from a business guru who shall remain anonymous and the funny thing is that this guru is all about the customer experience and mastering the yes. small stuff and excellence in general. And, and this guru also does PowerPoint presentations in very vivid primary colors. I said we're going to try to we keep say. this anonymous, Doc. <laughs> and how was the email addressed to you? It went, hi, begin bracket, first name, end bracket. And then it went on, this is Betty from the anonymous business guru team, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, when I read that, I said, you have got to be kidding me because I can't begin to tell you the number of times I've heard this particular guru 
tell people to have a, a, this a maniacal attention to detail. So for anyone out there who is thinking of blasting out holiday wishes via email or with a card, please take some time to get it right or just don't do it at all. Because trust me, the bad stuff gets shared just like the good stuff. And as Emily Weiss of Glossier Girls said, the power of the individual person is infinite. And uh, if you have complaints about this, uh, this comment, please address them to at Tom Peters, not to, not to Mr. Isaac or myself. Oh, um, so I, that's great. I have a couple, and I, I'm, I, as I'm juggling them as I talk to you, because I'm not even sure if I want to share them all with you, but here we go. The first one, and it's related to this whole kind of beauty theme that we have, beauty slash value theme, Facetune. Have you heard of this app? Facetune? Facetune is looking to prove that a subscription iPhone app model can work. Facetune is an app that does for your face what Photoshop does for most photos. Because, you know, what could be more important than a selfie? And in a mobile world, if you're going to post a selfie, you better be sure you Facetune it first. Pull out all those acne. Make yourself look as good as as you possibly can. Well, the Facetune app had been available for $4 in the App Store. And lest you think who in their right mind would waste their money on such a thing, it was the number one paid app in more than 120 countries. <laughs> what? And there were more than 7 million paid downloads in all. This is so people can doctor their face before they post it online. The, the, so now people are freaking out because they're going to do an annual subscription of $20. And people are just melting down over this because $20 is far too much to pay <laughs> for the app that makes you good after you pay $4 up front. It's just amazing to me in a world where people, you know, walk into any cosmetic counter and take a look at the cost of (laughs) any cosmetic, right? Where $20 won't even buy you a thimble. And here the app that artificially does for you what all those creams and moisturizers fail to do, um, somehow people are in a tizzy. I thought that was interesting. That's crazy. Facetune. I'm giving that to all my friends for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know about you, but many of my friends need Facetune. So the second thing I want to comment on is it being the holidays, it being Christmas, what would we expect but um, our friends at uh, Madame Tussauds London? I thought we were going to make it through to the end of the year. (laughs) To to outfit the royal family in their own tacky Christmas sweaters. That's right. To celebrate the end of the year, Madame Tussauds has decided to, uh, and with the permission of the royals, I might add, because, of course, it benefits the Save the Children's Christmas Jumper Day, whatever the heck that is. I don't know what a Christmas jumper is, but I hope never to own one. So you've got, (laughs) the picture is just hilarious, where you've got Queen Elizabeth in this Christmas sweater. You've got uh, Prince uh, William and Princess Kate in a sweater built for two. Oh, God. It's just great. So that's the second one. The last one that I want to share with you, and this is, this is actually heartwarming, okay, Tom. Good. I know you don't expect that from me, but you probably knew this, but you know the Christmas tradition in America is not that old. You knew that, right? I think right? Coca-Cola started it or something. <laughs> well, I mean, and that wasn't that long ago, but if you go back in time, even the Christmas tree, I have a little history lesson for you on the Christmas tree which I think you'll appreciate because there is a media angle in it. So in 1841, Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, 
introduced Britain to the Teutonic Tannenbaum, the Christmas tree, and the idea spread. In the States, Franklin Pierce, the president at the time, put one up in the White House in 1856, and by the 1870s, trees were being sold all over the place, ornaments were being sold at Macy's. But here's the thing, what really made the tree uh, different from any other tree were the candles. Now, everybody loved the look of those flickering flames, but you know the problem, Tom. It burns your house down. Fire (laughs) hazard. So... This was in the era of Thomas Edison. So somebody at the Edison shop, a guy named, uh, I don't know his first name, his last name is Johnson. He uh, recognized this as an opportunity. So he set up a tree by the window of his parlor and he hand-wired 80 red, white, and blue light bulbs and strung them together around the tree and placed it on a revolving pedestal, all powered by a generator. And then he did what any good Edison employee would do. He called a reporter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the reporter, a guy named W.A. Crawford, who was a writer for the Detroit Post and Tribune, here's what he wrote about the site. At the rear of the beautiful parlors was a large Christmas tree presenting a most picturesque and uncanny aspect. It was brilliantly lighted with 80 lights in all encased in these dainty glass eggs with about equally and about equally divided between white, red, and blue. One can hardly imagine anything prettier, he wrote. The lights drew a crowd as passers-by stopped to peer at the glowing marvel. Johnson turned his stunt into a tradition. He later added more lights to the tree. Um, And this wasn't cheap at the time either. A string of 16 vaguely flame-shaped bulbs sitting in brass sockets the size of shot glasses (laughs) sold for what amounts to today $350. But in 1894, President Cleveland put electric lights on the White House tree, and by 1914, a 16-foot string cost only a buck seventy-five. By the 30s, by the 1930s, it took this long. Colored bulbs and cones were everywhere. So that, Tom, is a little history <laughs> of the Christmas tree in America and the media's role in popularizing it. What do you What do you think uh, about it's that? It's the media. They do. They're doing everything to us. <laughs> it sure beats ugly sure sweaters, does. doesn't it? <laughs> So thank you for a fabulous 2016, Tom. If we don't do this again, it's always a pleasure, and we look forward to doing this again in, uh, in whatever the next Absolutely, year is. Absolutely, Mario. And what size are you? Because I'm going to send you a jumper for, your, uh, for Christmas. <laughs> do not want a Christmas jumper, and I don't want it to look like Queen Elizabeth's either, by the way. That's Media Unplugged for this week and for this year. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. And it makes you look good too, Tom. I think it's worth exactly. saying that. You can also catch us at our... I'm desperately trying to resolve this issue that we, we identified about the show. You can catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Net News Check. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag media, and media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us, and it will make you look better if you use that hashtag. At cocktail parties among <laughs> friends. Did you know that, Tom? Yeah. We'll, we'll print it on a, a sweater for you. <laughs> Put it on the Royals exactly. at Madame Tussauds. <laughs> Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. See the Royals in their ugly sweaters at Madame <laughs> Tussauds London, a proud sponsor of Media Unplugged, not. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thanks for listening. Happy, happy holidays. holidays and Happy New Year. <laughs>